Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to Advent number three, the Advent in which we celebrate joy. And it's the, it's the pink Sunday, so you'll see on our Advent wreath, this is the Sunday that we light the pink candle, pink being a symbol of joy. Pink also looks really good on me, so I'm really hyped on that. I think this is two Sundays in a row, actually, I'm wearing pink. Uh, and I thought I'd bring a, some of you a little bit of joy. This is niche. This is very niche. Okay. You're welcome. The rest of you, I'm so sorry. I, it is not my intention to other people and to make them feel excluded, but that's where we're going. Um, so in Advent, we're, the way that we position ourselves, and I actually read something that I thought was really quite profound that say the Advent season is kind of this microcosm for the Christian life in general. Because what we're doing is we're kind of looking back to the first coming of Christ and remembering what that felt like. So we really focus in, especially on the prophets, the anticipation, and then when we enter into the Christmas story, um, we're, we're coming along with the people who were first, the first ones to receive Jesus as the Messiah. Um, but we look back and we remember in a way to kind of set us up to anticipate Christ's second coming. And so for us, life is squeezed in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And so that's what we're doing. And, and we really, um, we kind of inherit that uh, sense of anticipation from our Jewish heritage where remembrance is not really just, oh, this thing happened once upon a time ago and wasn't that interesting. But when we remember, we're actually recalling into the present the truth of the past and allowing it to transform us again. And so that's what we're doing in Advent. And each week, we're looking at one of these primary um, angles or qualities that help us to live into that prophetic imagination that we were granted in the Old Testament, feeling those feelings of, of yearning and desire for deliverance and for healing so that when we come to Christmas... Um, we actually can receive Christ anew. So when people say to you, happy holidays, it's not some sort of weird political statement. It's like, we're actually in holidays. We've got Advent, then Christmas, and then we're going to do Epiphany, which is always great, um, and we'll continue on. So I'm going to pray, and we'll see what the Lord has for us today in joy. So Heavenly Father, um, we do testify that you're here and you're with us. So come, Emmanuel, God, with us. And Lord, just as much as you are with us currently, we also ask you to come. Would you open up um, our eyes to see you on the move? Uh, because, Lord, many of us have fallen asleep. And it's so easy for us uh, to just trust what we see with our earthly eyes and not believe this far deeper truth that you are with us. And would you open our ears to hear your voice calling us into your future as you kind of make straight the paths for us in the desert, as you walk us along this, this highway of holiness. Um, we need ears to hear your guidance to know when it is that we are to remain on the path, uh, to not be distracted uh, by moving to the left or the right. And would you open up our hearts to receive deep and profound truth today? that we would find uh, in this Sunday of all Sundays a sense of joy of being found in you. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So how do we kind of want to approach joy today? Advent prepares us for the joy of receiving Jesus as the splendor of God. Um, that took me a minute at, like, as I was kind of wrestling through it this week, and I landed on that phrase from Isaiah 35, the splendor of God. So each week, we're looking again at how we're being prepared to enter into the Christmas season. And we're being prepared that, essentially, the greatest gift that God has for humanity and all of creation is Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of what God is like. As Christians, when people ask us, what is God like, we talk an awful lot about Jesus. He's the best thing that God has ever had to say. Every other image that we have of God must submit to what we see in Jesus. And so, therefore, it's very accurate for us to call Jesus the splendor of God or the glory of God. And we see this word glory time and again in the scriptures. We saw it in Isaiah 35 today. What does glory mean? It means the manifest presence, which is essentially us going, where's God? Oh, there he is. Like I can see him. There's something tangible about God. And so many of you will know in the, in the tabernacle era for Israel, there was this kind of glowing orb that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant, and they called it the Shekinah glory of God. The Pentecost, any Pentecostals in here? You heard a lot about Shekinah growing up, okay? So that Shekinah glory of God, it was the manifest presence, like the visible representation of an invisible God. And that's what we mean when we talk about glory and what we talk about uh, with splendor. And so I love this prophecy from Isaiah that we have in 35 because it's one that's filled with joy, but a very specific form of joy. So he gives us this image of the desert. So first of all, like the rest of the prophets, he's acknowledging that kind of desert era. He's acknowledging that desert time that all of us experience. But his vision gives us this sense of blooming and new, new life bursting forth in the midst of a place uh, that is well known for being death. And a lot of times we have to enter into that desert experience where there's openness, there's, there's availability. We don't have those things that we can grasp onto to make ourselves feel a certain way, but we enter into some sort of spiritual desert, and in that place we have to trust God, right? And this is why, you know, the two major seasons in the church calendar are seasons of waiting and opening up whether it's Advent, where we're kind of waiting and anticipating the first coming of Christ, or then it's Lent, which we'll enter into in a couple months, which is this kind of entering into this desert period to prepare ourselves for Holy Week and for Easter. And it's not a coincidence that that's the way the church calendar works. It's because we need space to feel empty. Because if we're honest, many of us are probably a little too full, right? Like there's just, how many of you already like five times this season have just said, well, it's just such a busy season. Oh my gosh, there's just so many things going on in December, right? Like we're just like, we're just enslaved to, you know, the calendar and the, and the parties and the, you know, whatever it is. Like our problem, our modern era, the problem is not that we're empty and needing filling. We're full and we need emptied. And that's why we have the Advent season. That's why we have Lent. Because if we don't empty ourselves in Advent, when it comes to Christmas, we don't actually have any capacity to receive Jesus. Like I love, like we've already done this as a tradition, like we have our little nativity scene and you put the little baby Jesus kind of behind and then eventually you bring him out on Christmas Day and you stick him in there. Anybody else do that? I saw somebody else posted that their, their daughter was like obsessed with the baby Jesus and Mary and baby Jesus and Mary have kind of migrated all over the house except for the actual nativity, you know? And I love that. It's like it's this space of emptiness and anticipation 
And if we don't take that seriously, when we finally come to Christmas, we're already so full up with just stuff that we think is our Savior, we think is our Messiah, that we miss it. And then we have to wait another whole year to go through with this. But what we see in this vision from Isaiah is God entering ahead of us into the desert, into the empty space, where he is the one that is responsible for seeing new life spring forth in the midst of the emptiness. And Isaiah is telling us here that when God is on the move, the results of it are redemption and healing. We see this kind of imagery, like something new is happening, this renewal is, broken, is kind of bursting forth in the midst of the emptiness. But what happens so often for us as very full people, that we're kind of stuffed with all of these experiences and obligations and whatever it is that we stuff ourselves with in this season, is that we so often confuse joy and happiness, right? Like that's a, that's a major, major issue for us. And so how do we differentiate when we're in this season and what we're talking about, we're talking about joy, what are we actually talking about? And is there a way in which that, that sense of joy actually blesses and does not discount what we mean when we say happiness? And so this is kind of where I've come uh, this week, that joy flows from discovering meaning in the life God has given us, whereas happiness is delight in a moment for its own sake, okay? You've maybe heard it said in other ways, like joy is eternal, Happiness is temporary. Joy is not mitigated by your external circumstances, but happiness is. Like, there's a lot of different ways to say it. But I, I, I really felt like this was kind of the key for me. It's like, okay, what is that eternal, unmoving uh, sense of positioned, like being positioned to reality that we can call it joy? And then how do we not do this thing that I know that I do a lot in my life because I wouldn't consider myself like a joyful person necessarily or even happy. Like I have a pretty dark sense of humor which I think is funny, but a lot, a lot of other, other people think it's funny. Like, how do we actually bless happiness? Like, just redeem happiness itself, right? Because I don't think, it's kind of this like, maybe it's leftover from the medieval era, like you're not allowed to be happy if you're a Christian, you know? I don't know if any of you grew up in that, but like, how do we bless happiness but find that our identity is not in being happy? And I think that's, to, to me, meaning is really, that's the key bit. Because, we're, we, we struggle to find meaning. I really believe that the core of a human being, like the, our my primary motivator in life, is that we do want to seek meaning in life. Now, some of us think meaning is, and, and pleasure are the same thing, right? So we chase after pleasure, whatever feels good to us in the moment. Um, and there's been, you know, obviously a lot of research done into that, like this is kind of the, the you know, the, the, a lot of what leads us into addiction or whatever it might be, like, but it becomes, when meaning is about pleasure, it becomes very much about the moment, and that's where we kind of enter into heathenism. For some of us, meaning is power, okay? If I can amass enough power in my life, then I might find some sort of meaning, so power and control, and we see that on individual levels, we see that on national, corporate, global levels, we see that same thing. If I, if, I have, if I have power and if I have prestige, then I, there's meaning in my life and I can never find enough of it. Whereas the people that are powerless, like they don't have meaningful lives. Um, but I think there's, while there's different ways in which we might misinterpret what the meaning of our life is, so often what happens in the pursuit of life is it, it's only about today and what I want today, my own desires right now. And I think that that's why we often confuse joy and happiness and why we find that happiness is so often fleeting. 
because happiness really is about delight in the moment, which is great. But if that's the only pursuit that we have in life, we're constantly looking for new stimuli, new experiences. We're chasing after happiness, and it's always kind of slipping through our fingers because I don't think God created happiness to be something that we, we find our identity in. We don't root ourselves in, in happiness because what happens is we turn happiness into a fetish. And what is a fetish? It's when you imbue an object with this kind of sacred ability to find who you are, okay? Um, so that could be feet, <laughs> you know, or whatever, like fill in the blanks. Nicole, I'm so sorry. You texted me this morning that I was supposed to be more appropriate, but... Um, so that's the, the problem is not happiness. The problem is the way that we hold happiness. Like if I can find some sense of security, meaning, love, belonging in happiness and being happy, it's always kind of chasing away from us. And so we recognize I need something deeper. I need something more eternal and pure that can anchor me in every moment of life. And I think that's what we talk about. In our, in our community, we have these kind of three theological values that we talk about, you know, finding intimacy with Father God. God is our source. And then learning how to inhabit our identity in Christ, okay? Like not just acknowledging that we have an identity in Christ, but learning how do I actually inhabit that identity and how does that guide me in my day-to-day life? And I think that's the key to finding joy, is that God begins to give us meaning in our lives because of who we actually are in him. And then that that joy in Christ, it blesses these moments of happiness, but it also grounds us for the moments of trial. And that's when you'll know the difference. If you enter into moments of trial and you completely lose all sense of happiness, it means that you've probably found your identity in happiness and not joy. And so it's something that we continue to kind of working out. Like, where am I actually anchored? Where am I actually rooted? And we see this towards the end of the New Testament. Jesus' brother James, he writes a letter that's probably like a collection of his many sermons. And this is how he chooses to start this letter. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I love this because it feels like such a paradox to us. Well, how can I find joy when there are trials and testing? Like, some of us, we tolerate trials and testing so we can get to the good stuff. But James is actually like, no, 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 consider that joy. Find joy in that because it means that you're discovering like your true identity, like you're finding meaning in your life, but it has to be purged. It has to be opened up for you to see where do I really place my identity. And so I think when we find our identity in happiness, it's in measurement of immaturity. This is kind of what he's saying, like let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And how many of us, as soon as we lose happiness, we're running off to something else because we can't persevere, right? Like we're just... We're little heathens. We're just kind of chasing moments of happiness one after the other. But I think you've seen this difference between happiness and joy, maybe in your own life, but certainly in the lives of other people. Because how many people do you know are, they're very resilient to the temporary suffering that they experience in life because the work is meaningful? 
right? Now that might be, um, you know, especially like, we see this in science a lot of times. Scientists, um, when they're, you know, working with like radioactive materials, they're putting themselves in danger. Like there's a, there's a likelihood that they're going to you know, be radiated and maybe they'll get cancer and maybe they'll die, but the work is so meaningful that they're willing to show up and potentially suffer for these things. Because for them, it's not about happiness. I love uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Slavoj Žižek. He says, happiness is unethical. <laughs> it's actually unethical for us to make decisions based on what makes us happy. And that's not even how we're actually wired. We're actually wired to pursue meaning and we're willing to tolerate a whole lot of pain and suffering if it's meaningful. So your aversion to pain is probably directly proportional to how much you acknowledge that you're living in a meaningful life or not. If you don't have any meaning in your life, you're probably very averse to pain. If your life has meaning, like some of y'all that are like school teachers, you know this. You know, some of you that are parents, you know this. Like it's profoundly meaningful to find you're, like you're investing in, in raising a child and seeing them go through it, but there's a tremendous amount of suffering that comes from that. And those two things live side by side, you know? Happiness and suffering live side by side in a meaningful life. And I think that that's the real difference, but we can only know that over time as we're working through it and, and figuring out where, where do I actually root my true identity. So I want us to take four minutes, and I want you to turn to two or three people next to you, and I want you to discuss this question. What has brought you happiness recently? Because if our joy is in Christ, then we actually bless the moments of happiness, delight for its own sake, because it's almost this like bubbling up or this manifestation of something that kind of lives beneath the surface. So take four minutes and discuss that question with your neighbor.
Give you about another minute. So joy blesses moments of happiness, and joy grounds us for those moments of trial. And I think it's, it's, it's sad if we deny ourselves happiness. And that's, you know, if there's anything that you walk away from today, this is like, it's very important that we recognize, like, we're not denying ourselves happiness, we're just choosing not to find our identity in that, because it can cover over the surface of us seeking real, true joy. And there is something to this reality that when we find our joy in Christ, being found in him, like our identity is in him, Emmanuel, God with us, like we should be happier people, or so they tell me. We'll get there. I'm only 37. We'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. But it's recognizing, okay, so this is the pronouncement that we get from Isaiah. We have this vision of like the desert and there's blossoming and there's newness of life. There's something is happening. There's an increase of joy. So how do we see that joy, not just happiness, but how do we see actual joy manifested in the Christmas story? Um, so we're going to be looking at the stories of Elizabeth and Mary here just in a moment. Um, so many of you will know there was an angel that shows up to uh, Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah and says, you're going to have a kid. This becomes John the Baptist, and they're like too old to have children. That's a constant theme in Scripture. Um, and then the same angel uh, comes to Mary and announces, you're also going to have a kid, and she's way too young. And I just found this, and if that doesn't bring you joy, I don't know what does. <laughs> I just love like we're in an era where like biblical research, like we're reclaiming what an actual angel is supposed to look like which is great. Um, so now you know why, like, the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and is like, do not be afraid. Because if it was that, you're like, yeah, I'm fine. But if it's that, oh, great fear and trembling. So anyway, so the angel appears to these two women, and we're going to be looking at the story where the two of them are kind of converging, and there's joy in this convergence. This is Luke chapter 1. Verse, beginning in verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. 
And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. And that is the Magnificat by Bach, or Bach, depending on where you're from and if you mispronounce it. I, I think Mary's song just blows my mind. So here's what's happening. You can just imagine this scenario and how it could have been really awkward for either party. Because Elizabeth, like she's kind of aged out of childbearing years. And so for her cousin to show up and she's having a baby, like that could have been a really awkward family situation. But then on the other side with Mary, it's like she's way too young to be having a child. She's not married yet. Like this is scandalous and like going to her own family. Like this is a tense circumstance. So where there could have been like a lot of relational brokenness, there's a cause for joy because both of them are finding the promises of God revealed to them in miraculous ways. And I love that when Mary enters into the room, the, room, the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumps for joy. John the Baptist jumps for joy. And why is it that, that that baby jumps for joy? You remember this prophetic word about John the Baptist, that he's the one that's going to go ahead of the Messiah. He's making straight the paths. He's kind of laying the foundation. And so John finds all of his identity in the, in the job that, he, that God is giving him before he's even born. He knows, I'm the forerunner. I'm the one who is to come to prepare the way. Um, and even Jesus says, like, if you're willing to believe it, John is the greatest of all of the prophets because he's the, the kind of the last, the, the penultimate um, you know, forebearer of this good news. And he's creating the way. So even in the womb, in vitro, John is leaping for joy. And I love in this, this, this song, like Mary just, like just jumps into full song. How many of you, like you love just like making up songs? And like that's an indicator like you're in a good space because you're just like seeing things and you're like, look at that thing over there, it's awesome. You know, I know Jenna does this like all the time and it's great. Um, that's kind of what happens to Mary. Like she has this revelation of like what's happening because she's still processing what it is that God has pronounced over her, like what her role is going to be in seeing the salvation of the whole world. And then she's witnessing it through her cousin Elizabeth, who's also received a similar proclamation. And she jumps into song. And the crazy thing about this song is it's absolutely drenched in Scripture. Like a lot of this is, it echoes the song that Hannah sings in 1 Samuel when she receives very similar news. She's a woman who's too old, like God is going to give her a child and do amazing things through, and Hannah leaps into song. And so Mary, her, when, she, when spontaneous joy erupts in her life, she can't help but speak out Scripture because she's been so drenched in it since childhood. I think this is very key to help us understand the difference between being happy people and being joyful people is because Mary had a context for what God was doing because she was immersed in God's story, okay? 
Now, this is the problem that I have with a lot of times the way that we've been taught how to do Scripture as Christians. Is Scripture just supposed to serve me in some way? So I just know a couple verses here and there, just the things that kind of help me get through the day, or I can just kind of read the thing in the morning, and then that just like, you know, offers me good advice for that this afternoon or whatever. Like, we, we have such a uh, low view of Scripture because it's just, it's there to serve our purposes, and Jonathan and I have been talking about this a lot, this pivot of like, it's not my role to interpret Scripture, it's Scripture's role to interpret me. And when I'm drenched in Scripture, when I'm saturated in the way that Mary was, where she grew up hearing the stories, memorizing massive portions of Scripture, that it became her reality, then when she has this moment of wild, unfettered joy, Scripture is what kind of bursts out of her. She can't help but launch into song. And I love that one of the Parts of her song are like, guess what? Governments are going to collapse. Guess what? The poor are going to get taken care of. Like, how often do we think about those things in Christmas? You know, good news, great joy. All the earthly rulers are going to be put under the, 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 the foot of Jesus. <laughs> you know? Like, I, one of the things I just find so funny in this, in this Christmas season where, like, you know, it's all been commodified by our culture and all this and blah, blah, blah. Like, you guys know that. It's not like news to anybody that Christmas has become this huge corporate event. But it's like, I was watching a movie recently and they just kept talking about like, we've lost the Christmas spirit and we need to get that back. And what does that mean? And people are like, togetherness? Frivolity? You know, it's like nobody can name the thing that this is supposed to be about. And so it just becomes about Christmas cards and parties and blah, blah, blah. And then we don't go like, with Mary, where it's like, oh, he's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. We're like, no, no, it's about the Christmas spirit. And you're like, yeah, uh, Christmas spirit. Um, He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. We're like, no, it's about the reason for the season. You're like, yeah, um, this seems like this is the reason for the season. You know what I mean? And that's, again, why we don't find joy in this season is because we use all these, like, banal platitudes to describe what this thing is supposed to be, but nobody knows what they're talking about. But when we're drenched in the story of God and the way that Mary was, we have a context for what it is that we're actually bearing witness to and what we're celebrating in this season. I think this is what's so wild. Like, consider the emotional roller coaster that Mary is about to go through. Because Gabriel doesn't give her all the details. Like, there's, there's one point where she's told, like, you are going to be pierced in your heart when you see what happens to your son. And we see this through the story. Like, there's a lot of times she's, like, confused by Jesus. She's flat out offended by him. She loses him when he's 12, and that's not a good look. You know, like, she witnesses him on the cross, and she's kind of like, she doesn't know what to do with what's happening. So the joy that she's singing out of, it's not about happiness, because she's going to have a lot of moments of unhappiness in her life. But I think Mary was able to kind of continually come back to this deeper pronouncement that she makes before Jesus is born and go, that's the real story. Like, that's what's actually happening here. And that's going to protect me and guide me in these moments of suffering that I'm going to experience before I see the coming of the kingdom of God. And so we recognize then, even in in, uh, Mary, that joy, it's a journey, it's a progression of us learning how to more deeply root ourselves in God's story, root ourselves in the joy that we have in Christ, and let go a little bit more day by day, week by week, month by month of our compulsive need just to, to find happiness. 
And this is what we find at the end, again, of that, that prophetic word from Isaiah. He says, and a highway will be there. <clears throat> it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. And maybe we just say a wicked fool is just someone who chases happiness day after day, who distracts themselves off the highway of God. Like, I don't know that they're necessarily evil people, but they're people who, are their, their view of life is so low that they don't think that there's any real meaning. So the best thing I can do is just to be happy. Maybe that's who Isaiah is talking about here. No lion will be there, <clears throat> nor any ravenous beast, but they will, they will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, as those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, I got a bone to pick with Isaiah here real quick, because last week I spent an inordinate amount of time talking about these lions lying down with calves from this other prophecy, and now we know there's no lions. Pick a lane, bro. Uh, but I actually found out, um, Jason and I were texting about this. So Edward Hicks actually, this has nothing to do with the joy sermon. This just brings me joy. So y'all get it. Edward Hicks actually painted that painting several times. And so I did a little deep dive. And I found all of his paintings of the same peaceable kingdom. And these are his lions. So we've got kind of like, uh, you know, top left. Uh, this lion, he's been up for a long time. Uh, and he's just, he's just showing up because he has to, to this party. But he's, he's pretty like worn out. Uh, we've got the lion on top right is definitely, this baby has been like pulling at his hair for like five hours, yeah. But he can't say anything. He's, that, he, he's really nice. He's like the nice guy, and he's not going to be like, Jenna, would you get your freaking kid out? He's not going to be that guy, you know? Uh, bottom left, this guy, he's just resigned to whatever's happening. He's like, you know, this is fine. I'm going to handle this. This is it. This is my lot in life. Uh, and then, of course, uh, bottom right, we talked about this guy going, I don't, I don't think this whole peaceable kingdom thing's going to work out. Because that bull is right in my face. And he looks delicious. Anyway, Isaiah tells us, no lion will be there nor any ravenous beast. And this is the problem with trying to read the Bible as a flat text. And people like, atheists are like, well, the Bible contradicts itself. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Did you see the lions? Like... But what, he, what is he telling us? What's he actually saying to us here in this passage? I think that our, our joy increases the more that we travel the highway of God. Number one, when we see God's splendor in Jesus, when we believe Jesus is the best thing that God has ever had to say, every word, image that we have that speaks to what God is must submit to the image of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that supersedes him because he is the splendor and the glory of God. And then number two, we witness new life springing forth in our stories. So we put ourselves into the desert. We allow ourselves to walk out into the space of nothingness where we don't have a lot of frivolities and, and petty things and baubles to distract us to kind of almost challenge the Almighty to say, okay, like, I want to see some flowers blossom in the desert of my life. Like, I actually want to see you do the thing that you keep promising me that you're going to do. 
And I think the beautiful thing is that the more healing and redemption that we discover in our stories, the more we begin to trust God and his heart for us, and the more we begin to believe that it's good because God is good. And a lot of times we don't believe that God is very good. I remember years ago when I was doing the ministry school up in Nashville, and I was doing some uh, kind of deep spiritual direction prayer work with one of my students, and it was like, it was an hour long, and at the end of it, we're like both exhausted, like she's been crying a lot, and she said, is it always going to hurt this much? I said, I don't know. I don't know if it does. But I think the more that we learn how to trust God, the more we will submit to this process of refinement and sanctification, the different words that we use in the Christian household to talk about such things, the more we actually believe he's good because we see the fruit of it. We see the flowers blossoming in the desert. And over time, maybe just maybe it actually becomes something that we look forward to instead of resisting. My spiritual father, Dan Green, who passed away this year, he always said to me, he said, you know, I hope that in some strange way I never stop healing because that's been the primary work of God in my life is he's constantly been healing and renewing and, and, and bringing wholeness to the places of brokenness. And he said, I honestly believe the moment I stop healing is the moment that I die. And talking to his daughter and his son-in-law, because he died, he was way too young. He's like 64. Uh, and that's what we believe happened. I think God actually finished the healing work in his life and he went home. He also planted the last little bit of his garden that he needed to. They had like two years of, of uh, house projects. And he set up his wife. He finished everything. He finished the front yard, and then he died. And it was this kind of miraculous thing, like, okay, I think, I think, I think he was done. I think he was just ready to go home. And I, you know, my parents would testify to this too. I don't know if I've ever met anybody in my life who uh, is more uh, hungry to see the face of Jesus unveiled than Dan Green. And that's the kind of life that I want to live. And that's the kind of life that I want you to live. That we are so uh, enraptured by the beauty of Jesus that we find this deep and profound joy in him that when things are going well, we bless happiness and it kind of bubbles out of us. But when we hit trial, we know that there's something deeper at work in our hearts and in our souls. And that roots us and grounds us for that because everything that we're experiencing is so meaningful. But that means that you and I, we have to be drenched in the story of God. We want to be like Mary, that when God begins to do a work in each of us, when he births something in us, the thing that bursts out is joy, and joy sounds like the story of God because we know God's character. We know his heart, and we know his intentions. And then we're actually ready to receive joy and stop settling for the lesser things of happiness for its own sake. So I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to spend some time in worship. And I think worship is one of those things where we're allowing the story of God to wash over us, to interpret us, to inform us, um, to kind of bring us into the presence of the Lord. And in that, the Spirit of Jesus begins to do something to us. Uh, so what I'd like to do, I didn't say this to any of them, but if I can have uh, my leaders and the elders, if, if you guys can come down and maybe just kind of like, a couple of you along the front here, and then even these little side areas because they're decently well lit. Like if you feel like in this season you're really struggling to find joy, um, I want you to come forward and to receive prayer. And people are going to, uh, you know, our leaders are going to pray over you that you might find that new, deep, profound revelation 
of Jesus in this season where it's, it doesn't just pass you by again, um, but that you actually encounter Christ. You receive that advent, that coming of his presence. So I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna worship, and I'm gonna give you permission to move as you see fit. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this vision of joy that we receive from the prophet Isaiah, that we see life bursting forth in the desert, that parched lands become saturated with your presence, that you give us meaning in our lives, you give us purpose, you give us a direction. And Lord, as the more that we learn how to trust in that, the more we learn how to rest into that truth of who we are now because we're found in Jesus, the more it gives us context for happiness and trial that it helps us to persevere through times of suffering and it helps us to rejoice when things are going well. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that even in this moment, would you descend upon each of your dear ones here? Would you do that kind of work that you so often do that we call conviction to show us where maybe we are settling for the lesser things, where we're only chasing after happiness when it's really been about finding joy in you so that we can bless happiness. Whatever you desire to do in this place, like bring healing, bring renewal, bring redemption, that we can leave this place more truly joyful than we were when we walked in. We pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.